Let's open our Bibles for our scripture reading this morning to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verses 6 through 9. God has said, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of almighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints." He said to me, Right, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that uh, our hearts can raise with one voice together in single worship to you. Lord, I thank you that the God of heaven has stepped down from eternity and reached into this world that He has created and has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And we will look forward to that one day when He will lift the curse from this earth. And we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where He will reign for all eternity and we will reign together as kings and priests with Him. I pray this morning that you would direct our hearts into the Word of God to understand what our marriages on this earth are all pointing towards. And I pray that each and every marriage and our responsibilities in them, regardless of our spouse, regardless of the situations of our marriages, will be roles that we fulfill with responsibility and faithfulness for your glory and for your honor and for your renown. Lord, I thank You for how You have shaped, how You have designed, how You have um, uh, it brought um, uh, couples together. And I ask, Lord, that uh, in this covenant faithfulness, this bond of marriage, that the church and its witness would be proclaimed loud and clearly here with something that is very distinct and different from the failures and the emptiness, Lord, that... People have without you in relationships. Would you keep your son at the center of each of our marriages? Would you guide, Lord, our singles uh, in their daily walk with you and that they would leverage their uh, singleness here for uh, the advance of the glory of God on this earth? Would you help our families to be solid building blocks in this great big family of your church? Would you give husbands the grace to love their wives as you have loved the church and to uh, help their wives be a wife that is flourishing and is reaching their potential for your glory? To exercise godly leadership and to cherish and nourish the gifts that You've given us. Would You help wives to display the beauty of how the church submits to the headship of Jesus Christ 
and that response and, and the leadership that, that works together here for the name of the Father to be resounded. And Lord, we do ask that you would work in each of our children's lives. Lord, you did not give us children to populate an eternity without you, but you gave us image bearers to display the beautiful image of God within them to a world that walks in darkness. And I pray that they would come to Jesus at a young age. And I pray that the things of Jesus would never grow old. And that the brightness and glory of Christ would never grow dim. But our children would out uh, produce us here and what they accomplished for your name. I pray that we would lead, we would lay the foundation, we would be faithful, we would model, we would disciple. But Lord, I ask that um, they would be able to see even a fuller uh, display of your glory than even our eyes have seen. Lord, we know all these, all these things are possible only by your Holy Spirit. He's the one who is the sustainer and giver of life, and we need his life within us. He ministers to us the life of our Lord Jesus. He overflows, produces fruit, gives us words to speak, gives us the truth to say in love. Give us, gives us the right responses and trials and difficulties and to people who have sinned against us. Gives us the conviction of sin when we have sinned and need to repent and go back to the cross. And has raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and has raised us up with Him for our justification. And we praise Him for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the last message here and on marriage, and some of you are breathing a sigh of relief, and I kind of am as well uh, here, though it's been helpful. We've, I looked back here, and we've gone through all these topics here. We started out with singleness and the glory of God, marriage in Eden in Genesis chapter 2, and marriage in exile in the fall, and marriage in Genesis 3, and the covenant faithfulness of marriage and exclusiveness in Proverbs 5 and marriage and excellence in Proverbs 31. Marriage and engaging in marriage, the work that needs to go into marriage in Song of Solomon chapter 8 and marriage and the preciseness, the exactness that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 19. The enemies of marriage in 1 Corinthians 6 and the expression of marriage in Ephesians 5 and last week, marriage and encouragement. And this morning I want to do a couple things here. I want to review, and then I want to share with you from Revelation 19, marriage and eternity. But first of all, in review here, I don't usually review this many messages here, so bear with me. But singleness in the glory of God. We looked in 1 Corinthians 7, and we looked in Matthew 19 at the end, verses 10 through 12, and we pointed out that singleness is to be leveraged for the advance of the gospel and the glory of God. And take advantage of the single life. And look at it as an opportunity to be free, freer in some ways 
to advance the mission of God and the glory of God. Singleness and the glory of God. By the way, all these messages um, are on our website. If you missed one or you need a refresh um, here uh, to listen to. But the next message that we went to when we jumped then into marriage is marriage and Eden. Marriage and Eden. We saw that God saw that Adam needed a help meet. He's, he, it's translated in our translations. It literally means a sustainer beside him. And the word is used every other time in scriptures of God. Of someone who we would turn to in time of need and help. And, and it used 20 other times. In every instance, Jesus, God himself is described. And the idea is when you need him to come through for you desperately. God gave man that kind of person a wife. And the point of all of that was so that they could become, Moses says, one flesh. And we laid that down as the fundamental principle of marriage, that we traced that theme throughout the rest of the sermons. But then we saw in marriage and exile, marriage and exile, Genesis chapter 3. Living in marriage in the fall of humanity, under the curse, and the propensity for man to make work his idol and neglect his marriage relationship, and take his headship and abuse it, and use women as objects instead of care and protecting them, and women who set up relationships as their ultimate, and letting their desire to be cherished and nourished lead them to destructive patterns and unwise relationships. But God has given grace in that, because in Genesis 3.15, He lays out one who will be the seed of the woman, the ultimate descendant of the woman, our Jesus the Messiah, who will reverse that and gives grace in a fallen world. Marriage and exile. Then in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23, marriage and exclusiveness. The joy of covenant faithfulness. To drink deeply in the, in the fountain of covenant faithfulness with your spouse. To look nowhere else for that kind of intimacy in human relationships. To practice faithfulness with joy and to beware and to guard against covenant unfaithfulness that will destroy your life and your families. To pour out your love on your spouse in a quantity and a quality that pleases the Lord. In other words, to not throw away what God gave us in Eden. To recover that, to enjoy each other. And then in Proverbs 31, kind of a, I guess, unusual for a marriage passage, but I was struck by uh, this idea of, of, a, of a flourishing wife. A flourishing wife. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, when he praises her. Proverbs, uh, the, the, uh, Solomon says, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Now what is behind that kind of a woman, that kind of a wife, that her children rise up, they stand up, they speak respectfully to their mother, they tell her they love and admire her. Where do they learn that? And what is behind that? And the answer is from a husband who supports her, who nourishes and cherishes her. Proverbs 31 verse 28 says he praises her. And that is the key word in Proverbs 31. It, 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 it appears three times. A wise husband who cultivates his wife by setting a high tone of praise and affirming the gift that God has given her in their home. Not a neutral silence, not giving insults, but bright, positive, life-giving praise. And that wise sage 
in Proverbs 31 is painting a picture of the excellent wife giving herself to her family and to others and she is receiving praise from her husband and children at home and from even her community in the gates. And so this gives us the biblical vision of a wise marriage displays a husband building his wife up so that she flourishes in the home and in public life. Men, don't hold back your wife from reaching their God-given potential and design for their lives. Don't squelch the gleam of the ruby that God has given you. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. And then marriage and engagement. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. And then he says, Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown. And if a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. This is a love that lasts. Marriage and engagement. There is an engaging. I'm not talking about engagement like you get the wedding ring here. But engagement is in the idea of work. Marriages don't happen by default. Good marriages don't happen by default. And we have have carcasses of destroyed marriages strewn all over the landscape of even our churches, don't we? And they were marriages that one party or the other or both stopped engaging in the effort that it takes. And the effort to drive that vehicle stopped when the tank of attraction and infatuation that was the shallow shell that those marriages were built on was empty. They stopped putting the fuel in the tank of the marriage. And when the fumes whipped out, that marriage slowly coasted to a stop and the ride was over. But a marriage that is worth making vows before God and His covenant people is a marriage that is worth constantly engaging in, isn't it? If I can stand before God and give my vows to God and to this woman and to the people watching here, then that would be a marriage that I should invest a lot of energy in, shouldn't it? So it means that we got to constantly check the fuel tank, right? we got to check the gauge because the fuel always needs to be replenished. It's not an eternal fuel. We're in a fallen world. And in those two verses... We have, a, we have God's will for our marriages that will keep the fuel tanks filled till death do us part. And that's the kind of love that God intends and instructs and provides for in our homes. And then in Matthew 19, 1-12, we saw marriage and exactness. Marriage and exactness. Jesus says, Have you not read, referring back to Genesis 2, that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, And said, for this reason, a man should leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus says this, so then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Was his comments on that. In other words, humans should do nothing to sunder, to divide the divinely ordained union of holy matrimony, of holy marriage. And God, in His person, Jesus Christ in flesh, defines marriage, doesn't He? One man, one woman, intended for life. 
And Jesus here is pushing back against the cheapening of marriage that the Jewish society had, had, uh, had uh, um, began to seep in by showing us how grand every lawful marriage really is. Well, God is therefore joined together. Let not man separate. And if you are married, even if your marriage in some ways disappoints you, still God was the one ultimately who, when you said I do, brought you together. Your imperfect marriage in this world of today is as sacred in the sight of God as a perfect marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Once you are joined, one flesh, that's God's intention to stay that way. Your marriage, in other words, to stay together is a miracle of God's grace. And your marriage came to you with a touch of God on it and it remains dear to Him. And your marriage has the potential by His grace to bring, bring redemption into the broken world we all live in now. So therefore, your marriage, imperfect as it is, is worth celebrating. Jesus thought so. And says so. But there are enemies. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20, we looked at marriage and enemies. And with the allure of sexual immorality all around us, beckoning in many forms to indulge in impurity and fornication through our eye gates, our emotions, our bodies... Our devotion to Jesus as His bride is under attack. And our marriages are designed to be such bright signposts to the Gospel. And they are under siege. And instruction from God's Word in 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20 tells us that our true identity is that we are joined to Christ. Our physical bodies are Christ. They are, they are literally joined to Christ. And what really matters in light of eternity and the joy of our union with Christ keeps us separated from sin, from sexual immorality, and to our God, and therefore to what God loves and to what God desires, and that is godly marriages as well. We saw that the Christian's bodies are extensions of Christ. Your hands, your feet, your organs, and your, your eyes, your, your, your ears are all extensions of Jesus to be used under His Lordship. And you can apply that very specifically in the context of marriage to serve your spouse. The Christians' bodies, verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 6, tell us that we are married to Christ. Married to Christ as His bride. And then verses 18 through 20 tell us that the Christians' bodies are therefore, because of uh, their extensions of Christ, because we are joined to Christ in such an intimate way, that therefore our bodies are reserved for the glory of Christ. And apply that in the context of your marriage. To serve the other. To honor Jesus. And then two parts of marriage and expression in Ephesians 5, 22-33 broken up into two sections here and show that the primary way that a Christian wife pleases God is by showing the beauty of the Gospel in her submission to her husband. In a wife like this, people can see how the Gospel works at a practical level. It might make an eternal difference for them. There is no other relationship within the family that so fully mirrors God's purpose in the universe, someone has said. And every Christian wife who grasps the gospel will respect her husband as her head. His love for her, her respect for him, displays the romance, the desire, the love of Christ in the church that is the only thing, there is no plan B, the church is the only thing that will bring Christ everlasting hope in a broken world. And so that was part one. The wives. And the second part, husbands. 
A loving Christian husband cares so deeply about his wife that he makes sure that her life is moving in a desirable direction as Christ nourishes us. Marriage to a Christ-like husband is the opposite of what a dead-end life is. A woman who is married to a man who is a nourishing husband will be able to say at the end of her life, we had a great run living for Christ. That's nourishing one's life and wife. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, not only to nourish, but he says to cherish. And that word cherish goes a little bit deeper, and that word means to comfort, to warm, to soften, like you would heat something up to soften it. And our, our, we get the idea heartwarming uh, warming from the heartwarming, <laughs> heartwarming uh, from that from that sense here. Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of his own children. So a woman who is married to this kind of a husband here, who husbands are to be, who cherishes her, who feels warmth in her heart about being valued by her husband, held dear because uh, she is above all others, second only to Jesus Christ. Her husband doesn't compare to other women. He doesn't find fault with her. He doesn't treat her as a loser he is stuck with. Instead, he delights in her and prizes her, and the result is cherishing and a heart warm. And it displays Jesus' love for the church. And then last week, marriage and encouragement. Peter ties the teaching of the New Testament on marriage here with some additional insights. And together, Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 form a very complete picture here of what God desires His disciples to do and to be in marriage and its beauty. And Peter focuses here on the spirit of the marriage. And he gives us a more intimate look into the heart of God's design for marriage relationships. In two ways. The beauty of this proper spirit of a wife toward her husband and the husband's spirit toward his wife. The internal response. The, literally the heart of the matter. And there in that passage, we saw that what God treasures, what He values, esteems very highly is a peace that is in that woman's heart, in that wife's heart. A peace and a spirit that is uh, a, a, a gentle and quiet spirit. The idea is tranquil because of its hope in God. It doesn't look at their husband as their ultimate identity. It doesn't look at their husband as... Um, uh, everything they are living for. It sees the role of their husband in, God, in their life, but their hope is ultimately in God, and therefore they can even go in difficult marriages because their hope is in God. And in fact, Peter says, those who have unbelieving husbands, this may be the way through your spirit that God brings them to Himself. It's a powerful witness. And husbands, the essential internal quality that God expects of a husband toward his wife that he will bless is to understand that he is to give honor to her as the weaker vessel and understanding that they together are on equal standing before God. They are heirs together of the grace of life. And, Paul, and Peter says, do this, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to them as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that you can receive the fullest blessing of God. Are you an obstacle to God's blessing on your family, men? Or are you the pipeline because of His grace, because of, though, though you don't deserve it, but because of your, 
you're, you're aligning yourself with God's blessing here. Are you receiving God's blessing in your family now? And so that leads us here to marriage and eternity in Revelation chapter 19. Marriage and eternity. And we read verses 6 through 9. And I want you to be struck with this thought. When God wants to communicate His love for you and His closeness to you, you know what He uses? He pictures marriage. And so our earthly marriages, which will all one day come to an end, won't they? They will all day come to an end. Our earthly marriages are illustrating and pointing toward what Revelation 19 is all about. Just a little background into this passage here. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1, John contrasts the great prostitute, the great harlot, represents the corruption of this world and this religion and, and, and its broken system, its seductive, uh, uh, it, it, anything goes here. And he contrasts that with the purity of the bride in Revelation 19. And in this part of Revelation, the world is coming to the end of its history. The party is over and the bride of Christ has been brought up to Him. It is entering uh, into uh, uh, God's presence. And the wedding celebration has finally begun and it never ends. And in verses 1-4 through of Revelation 19, John hears heaven exploding with praise for God's judgment on that old world system. The Babylon. But then God's servants on earth erupt in a great cacophony of praises for the, for, the, for the union that they have with Jesus in eternity. The beginning of their marriage. Verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings. Can you imagine the noise of a large crowd? Have you ever been with a large crowd? And they are yelling, and it is so loud it hurts your ears. Um, the voice of, of, of many waters, probably many of you have been to Niagara Falls and other places where you, you hear the roar of the falls, and the voice of mighty thunderings. We don't get many really big thunderstorms in this area of the country, but if you've ever lived in the Midwest or been in the Midwest, you know what a big thunderstorm is. It shakes, rattles the house. The dishes you have to readjust there in the cabinets here. And what they are uttering here and erupting in is this, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And they say on the basis of that, that He has put an end to the broken world, the curse, the fallen world, and that He reigns. Let us then, in verse 7, be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb is coming, it's coming to fruition. There will be a point in literal history when every eye that has cast its trust in Him will now come face to face with the face of God. It's not a hope so. It's not a, boy, that would be really great. There will be a distinct time when this will happen. And it will. So you have the eruption of marriage here. And by that I mean a eruption of praise for the coming of the bride and the lamb together. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 tells us that God is all in all. It 
Paul says, And when all things shall be subdued to Him, the Lord God reigns, then shall the Son also Himself be subject to Him that put all things under Him that God may be all in all. And this is one of the passages where we see that picture there. God all in all. The Lamb and the Bride brought together. There will be no more distance. No more absence. There's no more waiting. Faith will be sight. Hope now will be a real possession. Sorrows change to pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. And the rejoicing here, the occasion for this rejoicing, this erupting here, is the bride has made herself ready. The bride has made herself ready. What does that mean? Well, secondly, it means there's not only an eruption of marriage here and praise to God, but the reason is that there has been a preparation for the marriage. The preparation for the marriage. And this is where it hits right here, where we live in the here and now. You see, this bride here is so fully prepared for the approach of her glorious bridegroom that there is nothing that can ever be done again to spoil this marriage. Nothing. She now is what Paul said in Ephesians 5.27, holy and without blemish. And how has the church here become fit for her bridegroom, the Lamb? Well, if we're going to follow the path of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 9, it talks about patient endurance. It talks about conquering the accuser, our enemy, by the blood of the Lamb, who has sacrificed himself for us. By the word of our testimony, by not loving our lives, even unto death. Revelation 12.11 By Revelation 14.4, following the Lamb wherever He goes. So walking in obedience to Him. By Revelation 14.12, obeying God and keeping faith in Jesus. Holding to the testimony of Jesus. You can see it in Revelation 19 verse 10 here. But here in Revelation 19 verses 7 and 8, she has made herself presentable. The presentation of marriage is true because of two reasons. Do you see what they are? She has made herself ready. She has made herself ready. You know, when God saves you in the gospel and makes you part of His bride, He has put His Spirit within you. He has written His Word in your hearts. He has given you a will now that is enabled to participate in His grace in a very special way with a new heart. And therefore... One who is redeemed by the blood of Jesus is not a passive person spiritually. In fact, listen to verses here that I share with you. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord, believers, right, depart from iniquity. Okay? There's a change here that God is bringing to His bride as He desires for her to become more and more pure and holy. Second Timothy two twenty one. That tells the, where, where the gospel tells us to cleanse ourselves from everything dishonorable. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. God's the one who does the cleansing. Now that we're cleansed, we are to cleanse ourselves from the things that are dishonorable and walk in our identity in Jesus. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, to reach by faith and repentance and dependence on His precious promises for everything that is excellent, becoming more and more godly, add to your faith those virtues. So there is a part that the bride plays here in presenting herself as ready. There's a responsibility there. 
Now, yes, God purifies us with His power. And the wonderful truth about the Gospel is that we have been saved, we are continually being saved and sanctified and set apart, and one day we will be fully and finally saved. Glorification. There will never be any presence of sin anymore. But notice here that this bride does not wait to prepare herself until after all the enemies and oppressors have been judged and dispensed with. Her calling is not, the church's calling is not to defeat the enemies of the church. Did you know that? Her calling is to make herself ready for the groom. God defeats the enemies. We're to stand fast in the faith, right? Her calling is to make herself ready for the groom. What does this mean? Well, our Savior has, has, has given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness, hasn't He? Our bridegroom. He sustains us. It's at work in us. It's, at, it's Him who is at work in us, both to do and to will His good pleasure. And we're to also work out our own salvation out of that, isn't it? Notice in verse 8 that there's a word there that says, um, to her was granted. To grant, was, was granted. Granted to do what? Granted, given the ability, enabled that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. It was granted to her to clothe herself with righteous deeds, to escape the corruption here. And God has declared us as His people as justified as, by His grace, perfectly righteous. He's working in us what is pleasing in His sight and in His will. But the reason why uh, our marriages point to the great eternal marriage that will never be dimmed, but only burn more brightly in eternity, is not ultimately because of us, but it's because of our Lord. In Revelation chapter 17, describing the great prostitute of Babylon, he describes her as arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And here the bride of Christ is simply described as being clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. A beauty that never fades. Thirdly, I want you to notice in this text here, there is a welcome for the marriage. A welcome for the marriage. He says in verse 9, Write, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Blessed. This, there's, there's several beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This is the, the last one, I believe. The, the, the blessing. Or one of the last ones. I think there's... I can't remember how many there are, but there's several. And this is one of the last ones. Blessed. Blessed. This, this is the idea that true and lasting joy will endure, it will increase forever in Christ. The word blessed, someone, someone has said, is saying, congratulations to everyone invited into this wedding celebration. How privileged and graciously given you have been this opportunity. Blessed here helps us to care a little bit, more, a little bit less about the price to follow Jesus in the present evil age, doesn't it? You see what He provides. The crown at the end of the cross. And notice, this is a blessing that is provided for all believers. He says, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are called. 
there is an eternal welcome. There is never a cold shoulder. There is never a, uh, a, the, 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 the silent treatment here. There is the marriage between the bride and the lamb, the bridegroom, that only grows in fervency. Now we kind of bring it full circle here. We started in Genesis. And the Bible is amazing in the themes that it takes and develops and completes and fulfills, doesn't it? Do you remember when we began in Genesis 1, the creations of the heavens and the earth? Here in Genesis chapter 21, flip over a couple pages, now we end with a recreation of heavens, a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place, the tenting of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears. The word is literally every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall be there any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And in the language there it is, I am making, continually making all things new. Not just one day when He will make all things new, but He is in the process of doing this even right now. He is making all things new. And your redeemed lives are testimonies of that truth. Your renewed perspectives on life your understanding now of how God has enabled you to glorify Him is the truth of, is a foretaste of this promise that He will one day make everything totally new, but He is making everything new right now. Because He's making you into His new creation. We are a new creation. And so what He's saying here is that the first marriage of Adam and Eve, and now the wedding of the Lamb with His bride here, <clears throat> uh, has been made possible because there is a one who left heaven to find a bride. And He has done what is necessary and even given His own life to provide for the needs of that bride. That bride was laying disheveled. That bride was a bride, if you were anything like me, and how the Bible describes us as sinners and enemies from God, right? We were broken. We were engaged in spiritual prostitution, Scripture says. But Jesus pulled us up out of the ditch. He's made a bride. He has made a bride. He is accomplished on the cross. Jesus became the one exposed in shame on the cross so that we could be clothed with His righteousness. The first marriage with Adam and Eve resulted in a fall in the very next chapter. At the end of that, it says they were naked and ashamed. Their innocence was gone. They were exposed. And Jesus becomes exposed for us so that we receive these fine linens Revelation 19 talks about our righteousness. It comes full circle. 
Here in Revelation chapter 21, the conflict is past, the victory is won, peace descends, the chaos of the sea is gone. In Revelation 13:1, it was from the the, uh, um, the 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 sea of humanity that the beast arose. And here in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, Paul talks about, or John talks about the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, our peoples and multitudes of nations, languages. Not sure exactly what the sea is here, but the point of it is now, there is now peace on earth. And will this peace rise from our own achievements? No. It has to come down from heaven above. And this city that lands here on the new heavens and the new earth is directly from God Himself for His glory alone. You know, all through history, and you'll see it in our in our society and our uh, you know the empires all throughout history. You see flashes of brilliance, right? Amazing things that people accomplished, and then not too much later, a hundred years, two hundred years, three hundred years, four hundred years, five hundred years, those empires are gone. Fall away. This will not. This will not. See, this city is one that does not come with stress, does not come with the noise of a busy world, busy and vain. It does not come with corruption and pollution. This is a city that is prepared as a bride adorned in her wedding dress for her husband, which tells us this is a city that is decorated for intimacy and warmth and joy and love and bliss. So that Paul can say in Romans 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Here. This is a certain hope. And this is what our marriages are to be a foretaste of. You may say, but my spouse... This is what your part in that marriage is to be a foretaste of. You might be 1% of the problem and he's the other 99%. That's not the point. The point is you are faithful in your 1%. Now, I've never found a marriage that's 1%, 99%. Maybe Pastor Fenimore has over his years of ministry here. And usually there's some good give and take there, isn't there? But regardless... This is what our marriages are to point toward. The joy of God's presence. Jonathan Edwards writes, In that resurrection morning, when the Son of Righteousness shall appear in the heavens, shining in all His brightness and glory, He will come forth as a bridegroom. He shall come in the glory of His Father with all His holy angels. And at that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, shall the whole church complete as to every individual member, and each member with the whole person, both body and soul, and both in perfect glory, ascend up to meet the Lord in the air to be forever with the Lord. Then will come the time when Christ will sweetly invite His spouse to enter in with Him into the palace of His glory. 
which he had been preparing for her from the foundation of the world, and shall take her by the hand, and lead her in with him, and this glorious bridegroom and bride shall, with all their shining ornaments, ascend up together into the heaven of heaven, the whole multitude of glorious angels waiting upon them, and the sons and daughters of God shall, in their united glory and joy, present themselves together before the Father, and they shall together receive the Father's blessing and shall there thenceforward rejoice together in consummate, uninterrupted, immutable, and everlasting glory in the love and embraces of each other and in their shared enjoyment of the love of the Father. Do you get it? That's what our little measly marriages, we're two sinners. Hard to point to. Let's pray.